Bella's failing all of her classes. Okay. Like I, all of them. Including like PE? Totally PE, which is dumb because PE is the easiest class to pass. How do you fail PE? Like, I asked her that, and what she told me was she did not feel PE was right for her. I don't think PE is right for lots of people, but you still do it. Yeah, seriously. So I met up with her coach, and I asked him how she was failing. And basically, one, she doesn't dress. And two, when she does dress, she goes and just sits down the entire time. Like on the gym floor? just Yes, on the ground. Just sits. Contemplating life? Like what? Is, like she just sits there. She just sits. And uh, I talked to her because I said, I thought you wanted to do volleyball. And she said, I do. And I said, well, it's important for you to do PE if you want to do high school sports. And she said, I want to do volleyball, mom, not sports. So she not realize that volleyball is a sport? I'm going to guess no, because when she was on the volleyball team this year, she had that spot, which is for the kids who can't really play. <laughs> you mean on the bench? <laughs> she had the bench spot? They rotated her in, but she was the only one not rotating for, like, other positions. And she just stayed on the side and bent over and had a little short shorts that she loved wearing on. And She really just liked volleyball because of the short shorts. I think so. Man. We need her to play, like, bobsledding or something where she needs to wear, like... Big, long, cold body covered. What I want to play with her is dodgeball. It's appropriate to get your kid when you're playing dodgeball. I think so. I like that too. Yeah, we should just form a mom's moms versus kids dodgeball tournament where all we do is nail our kids and not get in trouble. Oh my gosh, we would we would make so much money off of that. <laughs> I'm in. I'm in. You've been waiting for it all week. And here it is. Part two of the interview with writer-director from Instant Family, Sean Anders. You're listening to the Mother Effin Podcast with Patty Crouch and Heather Dragulescu. I remember on ours, the first anger I felt at the kids was when my son used my beautiful white pillows and stupid me for having white anything in the house. You didn't know any better. As a napkin for eating cherries. So there was just like finger streaks all over the napkin. And I had been holding it in myself this whole honeymoon period being like, oh, it's okay. And I was like, what are you doing? <laughs> you should know better. And he's like, what? What's wrong? I always wipe my hands on stuff. And then I looked around and I saw hand streaks everywhere for the first time in the house. And that's when I had the first, like I had to excuse myself and had a whole ranting meltdown. Because I was like, my house has gone to hell. What have I done? And that's why I love that scene where it's like my, when they're talking about, we could just get rid of them. <laughs> I'm like, they've only been here two weeks. I can. We can. We have time. We, it's time. It didn't work. <laughs> it's not finalized until it's finalized. I mean, ten. And even then, right? <laughs> On the well, another thing I can tell you, you. This goes back to the question you asked earlier about things that were cut out. One thing you might you might have noticed in the movie is that a lot of their furniture was white, and there was originally something in the script that their that almost everything in their home was white, and there was going to be this exact thing that you're talking about that all of their furniture was kind of destroyed. It ended up getting kind of lost for time that there was only so many things that we could cover, yeah, but yeah. that was why their house, when you see the set that they have a white couch and they have a white chair and they have oh, white yeah. fabric gotcha. dining room chairs. And we ended up not being able to do that. And I always wondered if, if not just adoptive families, but parents in general would notice like, why would you have all this white furniture to bring, <laughs> <laughs> you know, get a, get a slip cover. <laughs> 
Um, on the flip side, was there that moment when, I know for me, I had this overwhelming moment, like on day, I think it was like day four or five, where I was like, if, if, if these kids are mine, like, actually, it was after the adoption, like, I was like, these kids are mine forever. Like that immense amount of love that you get with, I'm a crier, so then of course I cried. <laughs> oh, like these kids are mine forever and I get to be in their life forever. Was there a moment? So what was the, what was the moment? What was the moment that you knew that? Well, there was moments in between before it was finalized where I remembered just going, I get to love these kids. Like I get to be a mom. I get to be a mom to these kids. Like this, that I would just look, my mom talked to me about this too. Like you just, I would just over like look at them and then just get this over sense of love for them. And they wouldn't be anything in particular. It'd be like they'd be playing or they would come up and ask for a juice or something like simple. But it was just like this amazing like gift that I was given of being able to be these kids' parents, you know, like their mom. And then the day that we finalized, we walked out of the court going, we can die now. They won't go back to foster care <laughs> because they would be go back to foster care if one of us died, if we died. And then like after all the hoopla of adoption parties and everything was over, I remember just having making breakfast for them and just going this is like forever like forever there's no social worker gonna take them there's no judge that's gonna say we're not worthy there's like we sign the papers it's done like they are mine forever well i had i had three really specific moments for me because um, when the kids came, you know, in the movie, Mark says when they meet the kids, I thought there would be this cosmic connection. And that was me. I thought I was hoping when we when we met them for the first time, I would be like, oh, my God, like, I feel it. These are my kids. And it was couldn't have been anything further from that. It was just like, oh, this is weird. And and it's uncomfortable. And like babysitting. Um, once. It's like, these are, were we just watching? The yeah, kids? exactly. Well, and I don't know if you guys did this, but when we first met our kids, the first time that we met them, it was like this two-hour play day. Yeah. And it was like, it's like, I mean, even with your own kids, how often do you sit there and play with them for two straight hours? Oh, God, never. (laughs) (laughs) And so that's brutal, you know, and especially with kids you don't even know, and the kids are really rambunctious, and and we walked away from there just kind of shell-shocked, but... So what happened with us is that the kids came to stay with us. And, you know, what I tell everybody is, look, we didn't love them at first. We didn't even, we didn't know them. They didn't know us. They didn't love us, you know. Yeah. It was it was this, and that's why when people sort of said, oh, how could you make a comedy about this? Like, you people living in your house who you're supposed to be their parents and you don't even know them and you don't even love them, that's funny. That's just awkward yeah. and strange <laughs> yeah. Yeah. For, every, for everybody involved, you know. So... Anyhow, for us, it went on like that for a while where we were definitely getting to know them better, getting closer to them. And I think it's kind of like what you were describing where you're kind of falling in love with them, but you almost don't even realize it because you're also in hell for so much of yes. the oh, yes. that You're just like, you're, you're kind of hating them at the same time that you're falling in love with them. But yes. so for me, there was this one moment, I've described this moment many times, um, where um, the kids would always wake up really early and they would always immediately start fighting with each other of right course. out in the hallway outside of our bedroom. So we, we were, you know, we were sleep deprived and, you know, and it's just such a shitty way to wake up every morning. Oh, it is. You hear people yelling, yelling at each other, you know? And so 
one morning I woke up and I think it was a Sunday and Beth was asleep and I woke up and I just had this weird feeling. I was kind of tired and groggy, but I had this weird feeling and I all of a sudden realized what it was. I was like, Oh my God, I miss them right now. I'm actually mm-hmm. kind of excited for them to come in and wake us up because they weren't, they weren't making noise at that. That was a quiet morning. And what, and I told Beth that and she woke up and I said, I just had the strangest feeling. Like I'm actually kind of excited for them to come in. And Beth was very honest. She's like, yeah, I'm not there yet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, awesome. Yeah, I definitely... She, but she got there. But Oh, go ahead. Sorry. Oh, no. I, I was definitely a lot longer than Patty. I think because I was doing all the visitations and the therapy visits and having to advocate and fill out the paperwork and my husband was doing business trips that it wasn't until I finally got to go on a vacation and I went, oh, I miss my kids a lot. I miss them a whole lot. And I realized then that I totally love these kids. But I think mine was also different, I think, because I look back on it and I had two years of nose of infertility yeah. stuff. And so I was just desperately waiting to be a mom. And so these kids allowed me to be that mom. So in a weird way, like those things blended of them, me being mm. truly in love with them and me being so ecstatically happy that I was doing what I wanted to do since I was a little girl. So I think it kind of got me there quicker in a weird way. But mm-hmm. I think the idea of being a mom solidified and then that makes sense. That's, that makes a ton of sense. And you're the first person I've heard describe it that way. And I think that would be a really important thing to share with people because unfortunately I think so many people that sort of go through the in vitro process and are, you know, are trying to get pregnant for years and years, they they just tend to think, well, I you know I lost at the thing that I wanted to do, and they're sort of mourning that loss. And I think that they need to hear that more from people of just that 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 there's there's other ways to get there and to get to that feeling that you wanted. And even though it's different than what you wanted, even the thing that you wanted, if you got it, that was going to be different than what you thought it was too. So I think that it would be important for a lot of people to know that, that if you've been trying to get pregnant for a long time, even if kids come into your life that aren't your kids, they're going to come in and kind of bestow a lot of those same emotions on you that you've been sort of chasing after all that time. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, do you think that's accurate? It completely is accurate. We, I think the reason why we stopped infertility is we realized in the very end what we wanted wasn't, half of my husband and half of me, what we wanted was to be parents. And so then it became, yeah. that became the, I don't say the goal, it sounds weird, the end game. So then we were, was, we always wanted to adopt. We always, our, my grand plan was to have two biological kids and adopt a third. Like that was my grand plan. Because um, fostering and adoption has always been in our hearts. So then when the infertility thing kind of happened, it was like, well, why are we doing this? Like, what's the end result? Um, I, I think infertility is one of those other topics that lots of people don't talk about the hardships and the laughter of it. Like the yeah. ideas of what we went through of, is insane as well. Well, the other moments, um, we, for our first court date, and again, just being brutally honest, we Please. were the, the, the scene in the movie where they're talking about, you know, giving the kids back. I was so miserable for some of the beginning of it because I just wasn't acclimating well at the beginning mm-hmm. that I would lay awake in bed and my wife and I would have conversations like it. And like the characters in the movie, we knew we would never actually go through with anything like yeah. that, but it just made us feel better to talk about like, is there <laughs> oh, yeah. some way, is there some way back to the, cause, cause by the way, our life before 
it was really easy. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> yes. We did yes. really have, <laughs> you know, it was so quiet and clean and organized and, you know, and, uh, so anyway, when we went to, um, when we went to, uh, um, so our first court date, um, we had to write a letter to the judge and this, this elements of this made it into the movie where we, we weren't sure what to write and we didn't even quite know how we felt necessarily. So what we ended up writing was we just want what's best for the kids, whether that means staying with us or going back to their birth mother. And that, you know, there's an aspect of that in the movie. And then like you said, you went on a vacation. In our case, we, we went on a family vacation altogether. And after that court date, a few months later, we went on a, a family trip back to Wisconsin, which is where we're from originally. And it, it was really interesting what happened on that vacation because the kids, you know, we were traveling, we were on airplanes, we were, we were driving long distances, we were staying, you know, with my parents. We, were, we went and we stayed in a little cabin and we took a canoe trip. And in particular, we had this one moment where me and my friend who we met up there and the kids took a canoe and his kids and we took a canoe and we went out to this Island. Um, and then there was this massive storm and the only place oh, to take no. refuge on the Island was in this nasty, uh, public toilet. Oh my goodness. And it just reeked like crazy. So we just, with the kids, we sat there and then to just kind of calm them down, we, me and my friend made up this story about Puku Island and, <laughs> and we, and the kids were just laughing, hearing about Puku Island, the legend of Puku Island. And that whole thing, by the time we got back from that trip, all these experiences combined where we just knew at that point, we're a family. These are our kids. Aww. This is who we are now. Aww. So when we, when the next hearing came up, we had the same judge and the same, and who, by the way, we never met for either one of what? Because we didn't go into the courtroom. But, oh. Well, we didn't go into the courtroom because there was no... Our, our kids were too young, so the only one that really had to appear was our son, and he didn't want to go into the courtroom. Uh-huh. So we stayed outside with him. So all we did was submit a letter. So wow. the second time, we wrote another letter that said, you know, the, we, we last time we did this, we said that we just want what's best for the kids whether that means this or that, but this time we're saying the same thing. We want what's best for the kids, but now we know for sure we are what's best for the kids. We're a family. Oh. This is who we are. This is what the kids are doing. <laughs> and, <laughs> and well, and then the funny part is the third moment for me was, you know, uh, when, when we finally had the adoption hearing, and this was something that we did cut out of the movie that Mark Wahlberg had this line originally in the movie that when we went to our hearing, we didn't really make a big thing out of it um, because it just sort of felt like, well, we're, we've been a family for months at this point. It just felt like paperwork. Like we just have to go to the DMV and kind mm-hmm. of do our thing. And then we got there. And when we got into the courtroom and we saw how happy all the people in court were, and it, and it occurred to me right away, Oh, right. These people just deal with terrible stuff all day, every day. Yeah. And then every now and then they get a moment like this and then I got very overwhelmed with emotion and it became a much bigger moment than I expected it to be. And I always, and, and in the movie I got to kind of have a do over because Aww. if I, if I had known 
if I had known how it would have been, I would have invited a bunch of friends and family. And it, it should have been like a wedding. Like it should have been this big thing. And it wasn't, it was really just us and the people in court. It was still really special. But then when we made the movie, I wanted to, I wanted to make it more of a thing in that way. And I hope that when people do this, that they, that they take that cue and they understand what a, what a big moment that is. Yeah, we had a whole 28 people in the adoption room. We had a big old party of 100 people in a bounce house and popcorn and pickles. And we had the whole <laughs> shebang. Uh, we waited a lot longer. Wow, though. popcorn and pickles. Yeah, that was the kids' favorite <laughs> things. So we had popcorn and pickles. Here, here's just a bizarre question that I have about the movie. I know most of it was filmed in Georgia, but that exterior shot of the court, was it Edelman? Because it looked a lot like Edelman. And I was like, oh, is that the children's court in Los Angeles? It looked like that one, too. I thought so, too. No. It is. No, but but the the children's court in Los Angeles is obviously what our experience is. So yeah. when we scouted locations, that's what we were looking for. Uh, was something uh, that was going to be similar it, to that. I thought it could be it. Yeah, we both grabbed each other and were like, it's Edelman. It's Edelman. <laughs> that place is hard. I, even yeah. my husband and I used to always have to like plan self-care for after a court date because... Even if it went in our favor, like just being in that waiting room with yeah. so many negative emotions, like the mentors are all just there yeah. waiting, to, waiting to like give you your last kiss and suck your soul out because it's just so heavy. Like so many families are being torn apart and they're and broken and it's just yeah. a lot. And then you have, of course, and then you always have those. The awkward people are like us who are celebrating in the corner trying not yeah. to be so loud because like, we're like, we're finally adopted, but y'all are still in the process. Yeah, it's, uh, I remember they'd always tell us like, you should, you should go and hang out for a while when the birth family would be there as well. Just uh, maybe leave the kids here for a few hours. They're watching movies. They're fine. Why don't you go have lunch and, and come back and get them because they didn't want any altercations between us, which I guess happens. Oh, we witnessed one. Corner. It was scary. Bailiffs came out and guns were raised. It was like, okay, this is not going to help your case. Yeah. Like, do you not realize that it was in, that place was insane? Sometimes. Yeah, I think. Well, you know, it's another thing that that got cut out of the movie is that we, when they go to court the first time, originally there was a scene that took place um, uh, out in the lobby, and um, and there was there was a moment that of, you know, where, where there was just sort of vignettes of looking around at what you see when you're sitting there. Yeah, and that yeah. used to be in the movie and we, we had to cut that for time. Um, so yeah, no, it's a very real thing because you're there. And of course you can't help but think, you know, the emotions that come from all of this, that it, again, it's like Ellie in the movie when she, when she meets the birth mother and she feels guilty and she feels bad and, you, you know, you're in that situation where yeah. what I've said to people over and over again is every adoption, even the ones where, you know, that, that seem like the, you know, that aren't foster care, that are planned and whatever, every adoption begins with some level of tragedy because anytime somebody isn't going to be raised by the people they're born to, that's a tragedy, you know? Yeah. And then, but it's, but it's also a reality that this, that there are a lot of people out there who, who either are incapable or unwilling to take care of their kids. And there are people, you know, who just can't or won't or whatever. So need people like you guys to, to step in, but it, but it puts you in a, in a weird spot because nobody wants to be the person who feels like mm -mm. that they're tearing a family apart or they're somehow facilitating that yeah. to happen. 
and you know, and I'm sure you guys have experienced this, and I've experienced it, you know, from at least on social media with people who have made comments about the movie, that there are some people that have these really negative emotions about it, yeah. to which you just sort of feel like, so what are we supposed to do? These kids are just supposed to like live in group homes and not have love and not have families. Yeah. You know, it's a it's a really complicated situation. Um, and there's no right or wrong answers to really any of it, but it it definitely, when, when you're in it emotionally, it can be pretty overwhelming because, you know, you, you just always want to do the right thing. But, um, but, but like you said, when you're, when you're there in family court and you're seeing sort of, you know, where all this sort of begins from, it's, it's a really difficult thing to, to process. Yeah. But at the same time, you know, like I said, I don't, I, I don't, I don't want to dwell on that because there's also, you know, this, this thing of being able to fall in love with your own kids and to be able to provide these kids who didn't really have this opportunity previously with, with a loving family. And then all of the, the love and, and, um, and meaning that you get back from your kids is so positive. So. Okay, I just went on like a huge rant there. I no, I love it. We loved it. <laughs> no, it was really hard for me to explain because I was a hot mess the day. I'm a hot mess a lot. I cry a lot. Sean, you should know this about me. Um, but <laughs> Good for comedy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it is really. Uh, TPR happened and I was a hot mess that day. And it wasn't because I knew that the girls were going to be adopted and more than likely we were going to be the family. It was because I knew the heartache that their birth mom was feeling. Because I was scared of that the whole entire time. Like, I was scared I was going to lose my kids, my girls. And she lost those exact same girls. Yeah. And it was hard for people to grasp that point of it. Of, like, yes, it's joyful for us and I can celebrate and I will celebrate eventually. But at the same time, like, it was heart-wrenching to know that she lost her daughters. And there's that that, that flip side that people don't talk about a lot. And I yeah, think, absolutely. I think for me, Ellie says the greatest line when she, you know, she says, but what about our family? And there were those moments of you want what's best is is visitation is unification best. But I've made this family and I feel like it's pretty great. I don't want to break up this beautiful thing I've made. Right. And that becomes stronger and more he- healthier for everyone involved. Like. Yeah. My kids are supposed to be with us, despite the heartache and despite the loss that they have endured when their birth, like losing their birth mom and whatnot. And that's where the beauty of yeah. the adoption comes out of, you know, of knowing that we are creating these families that are just actually like you, the movie portrays in the end, just families dealing yeah. with their own shit show. <laughs> and it's a shit show. Well, and I'm, I mean, nothing makes me happier. This is, I've said, said to everybody that. You know, if my career has any kind of a point to it at all, it was really this movie that I didn't think I'd be able to, I wasn't sure if I'd be able to make this movie at all. And my dream was to make it on the scale that we made it, which I didn't think was very likely. When when we conceived of the idea, I thought, well, you know, this might wind up having to be just kind of a labor of love, a small indie movie that not that many people see, but the people who see it hopefully like it. And, but but that's not what I wanted to do. I wanted to make a big multiplex, wide release, general audience movie, and particularly a comedy because I wanted people to to not be afraid to come see it, to not hear the words foster care and feel like oh this is going to be a big guilt trip or oh, yeah. you know whatever it is. And 
so that dream really came true in such a big way. And again, in no small part, I have to give a lot of the credit to Mark Wahlberg that when he got on board, all of a sudden it went from, you know, being one thing to being that where it was like, okay, now we have Mark Wahlberg. This can be a big wide release movie and it can, and you know, it just opened in Australia this weekend. It's playing all over the world and so many different, it's playing in countries that don't even have foster care system. Wow. Oh, wow. And, and then, and then we were able to, you know, I was able to have these incredible experiences. Like one of the first screenings that we had, we'd screened it for a couple of general audiences and the movie had played great. But we went up to the NACAC convention in um, in St. Paul, and we got a chance to show the movie to a packed house filled with adoptive families, social oh. workers, just everybody in the field. And that was terrifying. I can imagine. Um, because I thought, if they don't like it or if they feel... Because my, my big worry was, we're you know, we only have two hours. We can't cover everything. We just yeah. can't. You know, we have to... And in that two hours the goal of this is to make an entertaining, you know, to essentially make a piece of entertainment because, you know, if it just feels like two hours of advocacy, nobody's going to want to sit through yeah. that. And, yeah. and then, and then it's own advocacy is a waste of time, you know? Mm-hmm. So the goal was to make something genuinely entertaining that people who have no interest in adoption, have no interest in any of this can just go see a movie and laugh and have a good time and get the same thing out of it that they would get out of any movie that they love. But then what I was hoping was that people would come away with a different idea of who these kids are so that if either one of them maybe get inspired to, you know, to adopt or even, I think more importantly, if somebody they know gets interested in foster care, that, that maybe they'll be more positive about it because mm-hmm. people tend to be really negative because all they know is the dark side. Yeah. And yeah. even the dark side that they know, they don't really know. No. Um, yes, I kept waiting for that scene where so, all the friends abandon you <laughs> because you don't know how to handle what's going on. I was like, yeah, and that, you know, that is, it's funny, all these things you're mentioning were in the script at some point. There was a scene, not so much about being abandoned, but there was a thing where the, there in an early draft, there was a, I think it's, it's what became the birthday party scene was, was a scene that took place in their house where the kids were just fighting and making things crazy and everybody just kind of left and they just realized nobody wanted to be there around their family. Um, But we, we didn't, again, you know, you you only have room for so much. Well, you did a great, an amazing job. Like you're a, you're brilliant at thinking that it has to be a comedy first in order to be have a platform of advocacy. Like that is an amazing, brilliant thought because that's, what's going to bring the advocacies forward is the comedy, like the entertainment. That's, brilliant and you you did such an amazing job balancing the drama and like authenticity and realism Mm -hmm. of foster care the scary ugly part of it with the humor like it was a really good balance and I it it was amazing I'll be honest I saw the trailer and I was like I'm gonna hate this film (laughs) I'm gonna hate it they're making a hallmark movie of adoption this is going to be awful. And then I think within 10 minutes, I was like, no, he got it. He totally understands Nailed what this is all about. And I love this film. I've pushed it. I took my husband actually to see it because I'm like, you have to see this film. And he cried during it. I don't cry, but he cried he during it. Cry. And he actually said, I feel like somebody's had a camera on us for the last four years because we did the foster fair. We were on the website. And that's where we found our kids on the website. 
and uh, we have the older child adoption and sort of the struggles with her. And it was eerie in places Mm -hmm. because you captured it so perfectly. And this is going to such a sound like a weird thing to say. It was one of those moments. I'm not going to cry. But I, I felt like I wasn't alone. Like, oh, there really are people who have felt this too because it wouldn't be on the screen if those feelings didn't exist amongst many people. So thank you for for writing something that really touched me in, in an incredible way. I always hope that more people, more and more people, you know, get involved in it. I, there's there's one joke in the movie that is where Mark is, is being inappropriate because he doesn't really know better when he's at the orientation and he's bringing up the, the about how, oh, they used to call him, you know, pound dogs and now they call them rescue dogs. <laughs> rescue dogs. And, and it, it's funny because what I love about that joke or what I love about that dialogue is that it's just funny that he's coming in from the outside and he kind of doesn't really know any better of what, what's, what may or may not be offensive to say. But at the same time, what he's saying is actually what I want. I want that, that it's when you get over the kind of obvious, you know, potential offense of comparing kids and carrots of dogs and pounds. What happened with that? When I was growing up, getting a dog from a pound was considered like a very low rent, cheap ass kind of thing to do. And people would say, oh, that dog's going to bite your kids or whatever. Mm-hmm. And at some point it got rebranded into rescue dogs. And people yeah. just started realizing, no, dogs are dogs. <laughs> and <laughs> there's, there's plenty of dogs that need homes and they're, and they're good, wonderful dogs. And people changed their minds about what that meant to the point of where it actually became like, I hate, hate to use the word trendy, but it did. It, it became, I think people are more, I think people are more proud, often more proud to say that they got a dog, you know, that they got a rescue dog rather than a dog from a breeder. Yeah. And the thing is, is that what, what my hope is, is to rebrand foster care. Obviously not, we're not talking about the same thing, here, yes. but to rebrand foster care in that same way that people need to stop thinking about, you know, this, this, I, this negative idea of what they, they think all this is like, sure, there's real trauma and sure these things, these stories are born out of tragedy. But at the end of the day, when you meet these kids and you see these kids, you just, it's like what Tom Segura says in the movie where you just go, Oh, they're just kids. Yeah. yeah they just, I, you know, Mark was, what do you expect them to look like? Little pirate. You know? <laughs> and, uh, so the, it's actually something that we're working on now. Uh, Allison Maxson, who is uh, a social worker, who was our consultant on the movie, Mairead Green, who was our consultant for Lizzie, who grew up in foster care and was adopted as a teen, um, and was with us in Atlanta the whole time we were making the movie. And another young woman who's in the movie named Candy Daniels, who played the uh, the nurse in the emergency room scene, mm-hmm. also grew up in foster care, was spent a week with us on the movie, and all incredible people. And we're we're working right now on a project that is going to be all about rebranding foster care, not just for wow. how other people feel about it, but for how the kids themselves feel about it to just really remind people that, look, these these kids are, A, they're just kids, and B, there's also a positive aspect of these kids that, that not only gets forgotten about them, but they forget about themselves, that yes, they start from a really difficult place, and they start without some of the things that we all take for granted, but a lot of these kids have a strength that comes from oh, that, the yes. strength that comes from adversity, 
that they have a strength and a scrappiness and a resolve that a lot of us don't have when we just grow up with a, a mommy and daddy who yes. love, love us and we take that for granted. So we're working on two, two specific things. And one is that we're working on a very specific rebrand of what foster care means. To uh, And then we're also working on um, programs that would involve former foster youth coming back to help kids that are, that are in the system now um, and just utilizing them more. Cause one of the things that I found as I was going across the country showing that I did a big tour screening the movie all over the country. And I met so many adults who grew up in foster care and they just, they want nothing more than to just turn around and help the people that are behind them, but they don't really know how. And a lot of the organizations don't know how to utilize them. Yeah. So we're going to be working on that as well, because, you know, like for example, say there is a 13 year old who's about to move into a new home. Who better to sit with that person than somebody who's been through it, somebody who already pushed off on their own family and somebody who either, you know, for them to meet like, hey, this is what I went through aging out of the system or somebody else saying, hey, I didn't want to be adopted at first either. And I, you know, for those for those people to be able to come back and sit with those kids, they have experiences that social workers don't have and that the rest of us just, you know, they can connect with those kids, I think, in ways that no one else can. So that's th- those are kind of our two tiers of what what we're moving forward with is to a, a rebrand of what it means, and also a better utilization of people who've been through the system. That's that's fantastic, and I'm volunteering all of us right now, uh, Patty, myself. Yeah, we're in. Whatever you need from us, promote whatever. That's amazing. That's incredible, and I totally think that's such a wonderful thing that you're doing, and so needed in this day and age to. To really, I mean, it's it's shameful when you hear that there's a half a million kids, but how many families do we have? And if just a small percentage of families in this country opened up their heart to foster youth, we really wouldn't have a foster problem anymore. That's just, yeah. Yeah, well, yeah, and what I've been saying, but oh, I want to say this before I forget. So we're in the very first stages of this because really this came out of just, you know, a month and a half ago or so when I was out there promoting the movie of so many people asking me, what are you going to do now? And I was like, uh, something, (laughs) (laughs) you know, and, uh, and, um, you know, that, that I suddenly had this, um, uh, I suddenly had this reach that, that I hadn't really thought about because I'd been thinking so much about the reach of the movie itself. And so, so we're in the very nascent stages of building this. So I don't have a, a web page or a Facebook page to refer anybody to, but I do want to say if anybody's interested in what we're doing in those two areas, just follow me on Twitter or on Instagram. And I'm not, I'm not going to lie to you. I'm not a big social media guy. I don't post a lot. I was more during when the movie was first coming out, but it's just not a big priority for me, but it is a way for me to reach out to people and let them know what we're doing. So um, in fact, I'm so not a social media guy that I, one of my accounts is your Seananders.com or not, not, see that's, that tells you right there that I'm saying dot com. I'm like, it's like I'm 90 years old. It's the deck. Anyway, uh, one of them is your Sean Anders. I think that's my, uh, Instagram. And the other one is, is the Sean Anders, which I believe is Twitter. But anyway, if you follow me on either one of those things, I'll be giving more information. Because I'm definitely going to keep you guys, I'm going to bug you guys specifically about this when we get going as well. Because this is, and by the way, the way that you guys are approaching this with a sense of humor, 
Um, I, I read about you guys a little bit before you called, and I know you guys do stand up, and I think that that is so valuable because, again, that's in terms of you know, I, I know it seems a little cold to, to use the, the phrase rebranding, but that's exactly what it is. It's just it's just getting people to think differently about what this is, and I think that when people hear about this stuff their brain just goes into this charity category immediately. And, and unfortunately that causes people to just think different. It causes their brain to work differently. As soon as they they're under that chat, that charity category, their brains just approach things differently. So I think with you guys, and I'm assuming that when you're out there doing stand up, that you're talking about these things and that you're being very frank and honest about these oh, things. Yes. And I think that's oh, what's yeah. needed. I think yeah. people need to, 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 to not only let people know that it's okay to laugh <laughs> because these things can be ridiculously funny, but that it's okay to just talk about these things and just, and just have a dialogue about these things. Um, and that's what we want more of. So I'm definitely going to be bothering you guys. Oh, absolutely. Thank you. Yes. Uh, anything else in the pipeline that oh, wait, you got going I on? Got oh. Before I, no, oh, hey, sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. I would not be able to sleep at night if I did not. There was one criticism about the movie. Okay. And, just, just bear with me, Sean. I did not get to see Mark Wahlberg without his shirt on. Almost all the time in all his other movies, you know, I get to see him without his shirt on. There was a perfect opportunity in my favorite scene in the bedroom. Could have taken his shirt off, put his night shirt on, could have seen him. You know, it's really funny because Mark is, he's, he's very game in terms of if it fits the scene, Mark will do whatever, <laughs> you know, is, is necessary. He had a shirt. We had him in daddy's home and we had a whole thing about his shirt being off and whatever. Um, and, uh, we had a moment where they had just finished, uh, painting the room and Mark is, is kind of walking down the hall and in the script, it said he's buttoning up his shirt because I just wanted it to be in a very quick way to see that that where kind of where we're at in the night that they painted. He just got done cleaning up and now he's coming to help with dinner. Yeah. And and we get in there and I realized, oh, wait, the costume designer put him in a T-shirt and he can't be buttoning up a T-shirt. <laughs> so I said, why don't you just be putting your shirt on as you come down the hall? And Mark was like, oh, OK. And I mean, he was cool with it because... There wasn't anything gratuitous about it. It was just showing that he was that he was getting ready. Right. And then, and then when we when we saw it in the cut, it looked really gratuitous. <laughs> <laughs> and I knew that it it just looked really. It looked like, hey, everybody, Mark Wahlberg without a shirt on, and here. So now in the movie, you actually just see him sort of like bringing the shirt sort of down, yeah. like he's just finishing putting it on. Because I was like, I can't do that to him. I can't make it look like, <laughs> you know, like like he's just trying to show off in the scene. So we cut it out of there. Um, Did you include it in the bonus and, uh, features? So yeah, could you that. include it in the, the extended DVD? I mean, a, a no. signed copy of him with the shirt off would also suffice me. Whatever you want. But I mean, realistically, if you want to see Mark Wahlberg with, with his shirt off, like, just go online. Like, just, <laughs> just fo- follow him on Instagram. Like, you, you, you'll see. It's not like there's a shortage out there. <laughs> Definitely not. It was funny. There was one of the things I mentioned to my husband because Mark Wahlberg is one of my favorites. And so I see a lot of his stuff. And so when he was doing this movie, too, I was like, sweet. I'm seeing it regardless because it's Mark Wahlberg. Um, but I did mention I was like, but he didn't have a shirt off. Like I was a little, oh, you know, almost every single movie you see him with a shirt off. But I get it. You had to do it. Your, your main goal was foster care, not getting Mark Wahlberg's shirt off. So I get it. I get it. 
Well, and and also we didn't want to like overly beefcake the movie because oh, no, you know yeah. we knew that this movie was going to have a better draw for women than for men. That when it comes to anything about parenting, unfortunately, yeah. you know you get a lot more women more interested in those movies than men a lot of times. And we didn't want this to be a movie just for women. We wanted to make sure that that men were interested in it as well. And so you know we didn't want to be like you know. <laughs> no, it makes complete sense. I'll just Google it. Yeah. No reason to, to hit that too hard. No, it makes you did but, a, you uh, did an outstanding job with yeah. the movie, like an outstanding. It really it, it job. helped me actually reconnect with my my thirteen year old daughter because in that scene where she meets the adoptive parents who inspired her at the orientation, I just went oh, and they're like you know every day it's a challenge for her. Every day she wakes up and she's unsure of herself in this world. And I remember sitting there going fuck, oh fuck, she's not just the bitchy thirteen year old in my house. She's a 13-year-old who is emotionally struggling every single day of her life, and I've got to be a little bit more open to that and not so uh, reticent to get angry. <laughs> Just hard. Well, people call. Yeah, them. and I think on. And, and I think on top of that, like you said, she's she's also just a thirteen-year-old. Even if you were her biological mother, yeah. she'd be giving you a ration of shit every day too. Yeah. You know. Yeah. So, but but yes, there's there's more to it than that. And, but I, I, that's another thing that I really has been one of my, my big talking points is that I think that, that there's this very difficult balance. And like with any parenting, it's different for every child that, that when it comes to kids that come from care, I think that there's a knee-jerk reaction. At least this is, I'm not a professional. This is just my observation, you know, as an adoptive dad and having met all these people and that there's a knee-jerk reaction, not just among civilians, but among social workers and people in the field to kind of automatically assume, oh, the child is, is reacting this way or that way because they're dealing with this trauma and because of this happened and that happened. They try to extrapolate everything back to that when the reality is so much of, you know, I know a lot of people with biological kids who deal with really difficult things, who can behave in incredibly difficult ways. And I think that if people could, could get past always trying to connect it to the past and just be like, yeah, she's being a pain in the ass today, partly because she's 14 and that's what 14 year olds <laughs> do to their parents. It's their, it's their job. I mean, and by the way, as teenagers, that's, they're going through like a very specific, oh, yeah. uh, the, the, their whole job as teenagers is to separate from their parents and become more independent. And I think that the, 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 the grand nature plan for that was to make those kids become really off-putting to their parents or else we'd never let them go. The whole time we'd be like, no, no, stay here forever. This I'm going to use that. After a while, you're like, no, 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 go to college. Dude, please. I'm so going to use that. Thank you for prepping me for when you leave the house. Yes. It'll be easier <laughs> than when you leave the house. Yeah. And that's, I think that's what they're doing is that they're, they're part of their job is to rebel. You know? So what's, so and, what's uh, my two year old doing when he throws things at me? What's his psychological? <laughs> this joke yeah. That I, that I, I don't, I, you know, I always try to see the grand plan and everything, but there's so many things in nature when you really analyze them, you just realize how elegant all of it is. And I can't get my head around why nature decided to make two and three year olds just like raging assholes. Yeah, I think they're jerks. I think maybe because they're so cute. 
Maybe they just counteract how cute they are. That, that if, oh. if, they, if they were just adorable all oh, the time. Oh, that makes that, sense. That, you know, if they were adorable all the time, then we'd have all these like entitled rich, like yeah. millennials. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But instead, you know they become I jerkish. We, figured it out. I we think, did. I they, think that's what it is. During those formative years, imagine if they were just adorable and well behaved all the time. During those formative years, they would think that the sun rises and sets yeah. on them. You know, but they have to be, they have to kind of be douchebags a little bit Breath so that it. we don't. Otherwise, we would just hug them and kiss them like 24 hours a day. We wouldn't yeah, and do. they would have no backbone. They would be little teacups, you know? Like, this allows us to, like, parent them the tough way. Like, to parent them with the boundaries and everything. Yeah. Oh, we figured it out, Sean. We did it, Mother Ruffers. See, nature, nature is just, like, never try to get ahead of nature. It knows what it's doing. <laughs> it really <know>? does. <laughs> well, I thank you. I mean, we've, we've kept you on the line for a long time, but thank you so much for it's, this call. We really appreciate it. Um, in addition to the stuff that you're doing with foster care and wanting to rebrand it, is there anything else that you're working on that you'd love to, to talk about quickly? No, I, I, <laughs> we're working on a bunch of things, but none of them are far enough along to really announce. So, gotcha. yeah, we've got some things we're excited about, but i got to keep my mouth shut for the yeah, time being. No worries. Well, keep us posted on the rebranding and whatever we can do. We can do updates to our Mother our listeners. We can help you on that track because that's also due to our heart and to our listeners' hearts as well because that need is also wanted. I, I just imagine this world where kids aren't ashamed to be foster kids anymore no. and there's no, like, and people are, it's an option versus always IVF and always other kind of forms of adoption, which are also needed, don't get me wrong, but imagine if foster care was the first thing people looked at because no one was scared of it and no one was mm -hmm. daunted by it. You know, and then with our podcast, we bring the realism to it so yeah. they're not exactly, <laughs> they know what they're going to get into so it's not going to be all unicorns and, you know, puppies. puppies and glitter. But instead, it's like a real way that we can do this. You have a support. You're not alone. And foster care is cool. Well, and there's two things uh, that I, there's one thing I wanted to say earlier was that, you know, when we were crunching the numbers on this, I, I realized that we're, there, there's give or take around a half million kids in foster care at any given time. Mm -hmm. Out of those kids, about a fifth of them are kids who, um, who uh, if somebody doesn't step up for them, they're more than likely going to age out of the system. Whereas mm -hmm. the other, you know, four fifths of them are, you know, potentially going to be reuniting with their birth families um, as they should. So that means you're talking again, give or take around a hundred thousand kids, almost the vast majority of them are in sibling sets. So you're really only talking about probably even less, but about 40,000 sibling sets in a nation of over 300 million people. Mm -hmm. It's a totally doable thing, like you yes. said, where where I think if people's attitudes changed about it, it wouldn't take that much of an uptick in interest and support to, to make sure that all 100,000 of those kids that are in the system at any given time have uh, have loving parents. Yeah. So it is really doable. And I think that podcasts like what you're doing are hugely important. When I started, I did this seven years ago, there weren't very many podcasts, but I did listen to a couple of podcasts. and. What I really, what I didn't know I wanted at the time, and now I know I want, is that I did, I did want people that were going to approach it with more humor. Um, <laughs> so I, I heard some podcasts that were very helpful, but not always very entertaining. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, uh, and some of them were terrifying. Uh, but I, I think you're providing a, a really, really valuable service, especially now when there are so many people podcasting that people who, if you're interested in, in foster care adoption, you 
can kind of find not only the right information, but like a voice that makes you comfortable um, and entertains you and, and, you know, where you can learn. And I think that's what you're doing for people. And so congratulations. Keep up the good work. Thank you so much. Oh, we do have to end with one final question. Are you team fold or unfold with your underwear? Because this is an <laughs> oh, ongoing debate. Do you, this is a I'm, weird... I'm sorry, say that again? Okay, so backstory real quick. I do not fold my underwear. It wastes time. I do not need to make those 10 seconds to fold my underwear. Heather, on the other hand, must fold every article of clothing she owns. Therefore, her underwear are nicely Neat. folded in her drawer. So we have a big debacle an ongoing debate with everyone of whether or not you fold your underwear or you don't i throw them in the laundry and that's the right way which way do you do i'm gonna go right down the middle and say i do fold my underwear <gasps> but i completely agree i completely agree with you that it is pointless, <laughs> See, it's pointless. Um, but he does it and but it's still uh, pointless but it probably says it probably says a lot about who any person is of whether or not because there's there's definitely an efficiency to not folding them because what difference does it make? Um, I mean, especially my underwear. <laughs> uh, so, but, but I think, but, but on the other hand, you know, I was, I wasn't born in a barn either. So. So much. Thank you so much, Sean Anders. I hope we talk to you again when you're doing more great things. We'll update. Uh, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much for this call. Thank you. Thanks guys. Good luck. Thank you so much to Atlas Oceanic Sound and Picture for letting us use this amazing studio. Deb, you always go beyond the call of duty to help us out, and we appreciate it so immensely. Thank you. The Mother Effin' Podcast is hosted and produced by Patty Crouch and Heather Dragulescu. Subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Anchor, or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to visit us online at mothereffinpodcast.com.